1: It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I'm very happy to have all of you uh, listening to our show today. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the news about Trump probes, broke both in Washington uh, with the January 6th committee, but but even more right now with the Fulton County uh, special grand jury that Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County DA, is impaneled to look into uh, who it was who was involved with Donald Trump in efforts to overturn the results of the Georgia presidential election, which could, we know, lead to criminal charges, uh, perhaps against Donald Trump himself and others who the grand jury is investigating. That's really heated up, as we've talked about in the last couple of days, now that uh, Fannie Willis has issued subpoenas uh, for uh, uh, some of Trump's top lawyers, uh, for uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, and then here in Georgia, those are the first subpoenas she's issued for people outside of the state. And then right here in Georgia, uh, subpoenas for um, a couple of people who uh, have been involved in the effort to uh, discredit the 2020 election. So we're going to start by talking about all that. And I want to get right to our uh, panel today. Uh, we're joined by Amy Steigerwalt, Uh, who is the co-chair of the Political Science Department at Georgia State University and, of course, teaches political science at Georgia State. Amy, how are you today?
0: I'm doing well and just trying to stay out of the heat.
1: Yeah, it's just going to be another one of those days. By the way, we're looking at the heat on this show next week, and we'll announce it uh, when we have it all firmed up. But Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, who's one of the top Experts on climate science is going to be part of a show that we'll do next week on just that And we'll look at what SCOTUS did Supreme Court did in terms of the EPA ruling as all as a part of that Um, And we'll talk about that more at the beginning of next week Uh, Kurt Young is back with us. He's the chairman of the Clark Atlanta University political science department teaches Political science there as well. Kurt, how are you holding up? I'm doing well, Bill. How are you doing this morning? I'm great. Thanks for being with Thank us. You. Um, uh, appreciate your being here. And uh, we're always glad to welcome back emeritus professor, Alan Abramowitz, Poli- political science professor at Emory University. Alan, um, how's that emeritus title working out for you? Are you enjoying uh, your slightly more leisurely life these days?
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm still still keeping busy. Still got some projects I'm, I'm working sure. on, but uh, it's definitely
1: nice to not have to attend meetings, not have to write I'm reports, sure that's right. things like that. One of the, th- I, you know, I should point out that one of the things I always enjoy reading is uh, your contributor to uh, Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball, mm-hmm. and uh, often our uh, p- publishing. Uh, uh, information on his uh, website, uh, usually crunching data and taking a look at what data suggests about the upcoming elections, which is something you've been doing for a very long time, right?
2: Longer than I care to admit.
1: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, Let's get right to talking about uh, the special grand jury uh, in Fulton County. Um, So what we know for for certain is that um, Fonnie Willis uh, has issued subpoenas for William Ligon, state senator, 3rd District, South Georgia. Uh, Ligon was deeply involved in the efforts to discredit the Georgia election. He was the one who invited Rudolph Giuliani uh, to uh, Georgia to testify and spread the conspiracy theories about how the election was fraudulent. Um, He also Uh, was part of the effort to get the state legislature to overturn the results, excuse me, of the election here. So he's been called to testify. So has Jeff Duncan, the lieutenant governor, uh, interestingly, for probably informational reasons, because of course, Duncan from the very start uh, kept his distance, said, I want nothing to do with these efforts to overturn the election. The election was legitimate. We also think, that there were other Georgia legislators who are involved in being called uh, to testify, they haven't been named yet. Okay, that's the starting point. They went to court uh, to say that their legislature, their jobs in the legislature, are protected constitutionally from them having to uh, reveal anything about their work in the legislature. Uh, and just the other day, we got a uh, result in that trial from uh, Judge Robert McBurney, who said, sorry, Alan, you all have to testify. Um, at the same time, there are going to be guidelines because there are certain areas that we have, you have to be protected from talking about. Right, Alan?
2: Exactly. Um, so I think what we see here once again is that um, being an elected official does not grant you immunity. From being investigated for law breaking activity, that you can be held accountable when you break the law. And um, so that's what I think um, we're looking at here in this investigation. These individuals were apparently deeply involved in this effort to overturn the results of a, a fair and democratic election in the state of Georgia, where there's no real evidence of widespread fraud. So yeah, they're, they're in trouble.
1: What you've got to imagine, Amy, and I know this is speculative, but because we know the Lieutenant governor did not get involved (laughs) with these groups, I think you have to uh, assume that he's being called to give information about what he may have seen unfold around him, even as he refused to get involved with it, Amy.
0: Yes, because I think what is actually really important to note here is that the judge stipulated that they can be asked who they had conversations with, but they are not allowed to be asked anything about the content of those conversations. So basically what's going to happen is they're going to have asked a lot of questions about who did you meet with? And the judge has stipulated, yes, they can answer that. Any follow-up question though, what did you discuss? Right. what were the matters that they brought to you, that is not going to be allowed. And so what that will require now is the grand jury to bring in these other parties to ask them questions about the content because they're not covered under this legislative uh, deliberations clause in the Constitution. And so uh, partly what we're going to see here is a lot of information coming out about, who were other meetings for? Like who was involved perhaps in setting up these hearings? Um, who is it perhaps that uh, Lieutenant Duncan might have been approached by, right? Who did he mm-hmm. receive calls from that we may or may not know about and where it goes? But I think it's also important to understand that in many ways, like Lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Governor Duncan was challenging the subpoena really in his role as president of the Senate to try to... Right. That there is, in fact, this protection in the Georgia Constitution and wanting to make sure right, that in as an institutional form that that was because what they don't want to have it now be done is that, for example, if constituents uh, are bringing issues to legislators, that that can all be made public because that could be really concerning on a number of levels. Um, not for sort of nefarious purposes, but because there's information that people are bringing in. And so it's sort of trying to straddle that line. And that's what McBurney was doing. And so it makes it be kind of a two-step process. This is going to be sort of information gathering about who they met with and who might have tried to contact them, which I think is going to be probably a lot of the questions for Lieutenant Governor Duncan. And then they'll have to do a second set of subpoenas uh, for the people who the conversations were with to find out about the content.
3: Okay. All right. Yeah, Bill, that, that's Amy's point is a critical point, that kind of procedural uh, approach to getting as much uh, uh, information in terms of the various conversations as possible. But I also agree with Alan, not that the two disagree, um, but Alan's point that someone's in trouble here. I, I agree with that. And here, here's the reality, Bill, you, you can't have a picture being drawn at the federal level that's identifying wrongdoing as it relates to the inflating of new electors or ultra, ultimate electors, um, the pursuit of a delegitimizing of a federal election based on uh, 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 evidence that was thrown out and in, 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 uh, challenged in many uh, courts throughout the country, um, and all other types of illegal, acti- at least potentially illegal activity taking place around uh, 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 this 2020 election. And, that re- reality applies to everyone except state legislators. That can't be a reality, especially given the vital role that the state legislators will play in the process of delegitimizing the election, right? And so if indeed uh, these uh, these these individuals, ligands, and other possible uh, uh, um, 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 uh, legislators were involved in these kinds of conversations beyond who they spoke with, but were deeply involved in the process, which to me, Amy which raises to me the vital importance of um of um uh uh oh his name just escapes me um being subpoenaed by uh, Farnie willis um um oh his name escapes me but mm-hmm. it, 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 yes mm-hmm. that's the point i wanna make bill yeah
1: so uh, let, let, let's be clear about something here, Alan. Um, uh, Don Samuel, who was representing uh, Ligon, uh and Duncan, in, was representing them in court and saying that they should not uh, be required to testify. Um, he's also said there's a whole group of other legislators who are were not part of that suit directly, who have also been subpoenaed. So, so Alan, she's really spreading her net pretty far. Just because we only know two names, there's going to be a lot more people who are called. And I assume some of those will be people who were part of the fake elector uh, slate mm-hmm. and, and and many others as well, Alan. Right.
2: Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, there's a large group of legislators in Georgia who were involved in various aspects of this effort to overturn the election, either by serving as alternate so-called alternate electors. Are um, and get, being involved in efforts within the legislature to try to choose a, a separate set, choose a separate set of electors to replace the legitimate electors uh, who were chosen in the election. I just find it strange, though, that the legislative deliberation clause can be used mm-hmm. to cover up illegal behavior. Um, so this is what I'm wondering about. It seems to me this it, this judge's ruling is actually pretty favorable to the defense here, to the legislators, by saying that you don't have to testify about the content of your deliberations. I don't know if that's going to hold up. It seems to me that if you're if the content of your deliberations involves breaking the law, uh, I'm not sure that that. That, that holds. You know, illegal behavior isn't necessarily protected. We know that's the case, for example, with conversations between lawyers and their clients. If you're talking about illegal behavior, that's not protected. And I suspect that this kind of be, uh, these conversations uh, may not, in the end, may not be protected
0: either.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: So, the the thing to be clear on is that from the vantage point of the legislator, they are protected. They are not protected, however, with the third party who doesn't serve in the legislature. And so that's kind of the way around this, so that if the third party testifies, right, about that content, then that can be used to be able to then investigate further that legislator, but it protects the legislator from re- giving that information. And so it's kind of this weird dual side of it, because at the end of the day, the conversation can become public. um, And, right, they have to be sort of careful on on what that information is. But I think the bigger point is that uh, the presumption is that those activities now, separately speaking, though, what I want to be clear on is that there is no prohibition of anyone who is slated to be an alternative elector and is not a member of the legislature. So, for example, uh, David Schaefer, who is the was the head of the the Georgia GOP here, maybe still is. Uh, he is not bound by right any of these provisions. Right, anyone else who is serving right in a different position, right, maybe a party official or something else, they are not covered by this. Mm-hmm. Prohibition, And so it, it is this sort of weird gray area because there is a presumption that activities taken in office are legal, right, until sort of otherwise shown. And you're right. It's incredibly difficult to investigate them. And that's why many times the information from that doesn't come through uh, sort of their testimony, but because of evidence that's collected in other means.
1: Um so i don't want to get I, I i know this becomes very complicated um and we're going to have to see just what kind of guidelines judge mcburney does set up with uh the uh a special grand jury in terms of the line of questioning um i appreciate their that that what you're saying Alan, is it strikes you as uh, mm-hmm. uh wrong that they can't be ju- quizzed on potential mm-hmm. illegal activity but we'll see what judge mcburney uh finally works us. out for the special grand jury so, but I want to take a look at the picture, the larger picture here, um, and, and I'll tell you why, Kurt. It, we, we also have to talk about the fact that two days ago, Fannie Willis really dropped a bombshell when she, for the first time, reached out and issued subpoenas for the larger characters involved in this entire conspiracy drama, including Rudolph Giuliani. John Eastman, who we're learning more and more about from the January 6th committee all the time, how deeply involved he was in this Mm -hmm. effort to stop the certification of Biden's election as president. Other Trump lawyers like uh, Cleta Mitchell, uh, Jenna Ellis are going to be subpoenaed, and Lindsey Graham. And we'll talk about Lindsey Graham separately in just a minute. But but the reason I'd mention this now, Kurt, is— What we've learned from the January 6th committee is that there was a real plot Mm -hmm. to stop Vice President Pence from certifying the votes for Biden Mm -hmm. on January 6th. And part Mm -hmm. of that plot was Eastman going out to the seven states that were swing states in the election and establishing with them these slates of fake electors Mm -hmm. who would then presumably be uh, uh, get the, become the actual electors under this scheme that Eastman and others plotted at the White House. And that's where real jeopardy now accrues to uh, people like David Shaper, people like Burt Jones, the Republican candidate for lieutenant governor, who was one of the fake mm-hmm. electors. Th- mm-hmm. This becomes... It, it, this is what Alan says. There are some people who are in trouble. They really are, Kurt. Yeah, this 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 is mushrooming
3: and it, it, it's spreading. And, and by the way, uh, Eastman was the name I was just struggling with. So forgive that 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 uh, lapse there. Um, mm-hmm. and, and Eastman is critical in this because he ties what the folk the focus of the January sixth committee directly to the state of Georgia, which then allows someone like Kwani Willis to make an even more bold step, even a more definitive step in linking what happens in the state of Georgia, and as that pertains to various uh, Georgia officials and potential officials directly to the Trump administration or, or the former Trump administration. Now, and then the other thing that happens, Bill, is that what was once a Georgia matter that was sort of on the sideline of a broader national discussion about the Trump administration now puts it right on par in terms of the importance of what occurred in the state of Georgia. To what we what we're seeing unfolding in the January 6th committee discussions, right? And so, and then the other thing that will happen is that it will raise the profile. It will raise the profile of of Fawney Willis again, and the upcoming Georgia elections in the national eye, right? Um, because we know that these these the implications of the elections will not just Affect who, uh, who, will, who will win. It will affect these legislations and these policies and these uh, cases going forth on both the federal and the state level. Uh, so the, 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 this is critical, it's a critical moment. And if I were uh, those in the, uh, the Trump uh, um, um, uh, circle at the state level, I'll be really concerned right now because this thing is unfolding in, in, in multiple ways at the same time.
1: Alan?
2: Well, it's what we're seeing here, uh, uh, as Kirk said earlier, is that these activities in Georgia were, in fact, part of a much larger plot, uh, a plot to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election that involved all of these swing states, that involved members of the state legislatures and Republican legislators in these states that involved the uh, selection of slates of alternate electors. And that also, of course, involved the attack on the Capitol on January 6th and the planning for that. All of these things are tied together. They're not separate. The attack on the U.S. Capitol, which was kind of like the initial, you know, focus here, uh, was one part of this plot. Uh, and, that we're seeing or learning more and more that individuals close to the president were involved in every aspect of this. Uh, and, of course, we and presumably the president himself was involved in this. We know, for example, that Mark Meadows um, was in contact with the individuals in the so-called war room um, at the Wellard Hotel in Washington who were planning for engaged in the planning for the rally on January 6th uh, and uh, other a- a aspects of this effort to overthrow the election. So Mark Meadows also is very much implicated uh, in this. And uh, of course, that's why the fact that the January 6th committee has now been able to obtain a testimony of Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, uh, which will happen tomorrow, is so crucial because he was right there. He was in the room. He heard all that was involved in these conversations. He knew what these characters were involved in and what they were doing even as he was trying to prevent this from spiraling out of control.
3: And then Bill, just a real quick addendum to what Alan is saying. In addition to everything that was just laid out, we have the voice of the President of the United States calling. <laughs> and making the case for the exact number of votes he used to win. All right, and so now all of these pieces start linking together in addition to this notion of a national, a nationwide conspiracy to, over, to overturn the election.
1: Well, before we leave this up, <laughs> a smoke, yeah, I like that. Before we leave the subject, let's point out that that's why Lindsey Graham uh, is of interest to the special grand jury. We We learned something interesting when the subpoenas went out to him. We knew... Uh, previously that Lindsey Graham had made one phone call to Brad Raffensperger asking him uh, uh, to talk. We we, we hear different stories. The the Secretary of State's Mm -hmm. office says he asked Raffensperger to look at whether some of these absentee ballots could be disallowed as being illegal ballots. Lindsey Graham insists, no, all he really did was ask to understand the process. So we've got those two contrasting Mm -hmm. stories. But, Amy, the fact is he did twice now. We learned about a second phone call which he made to the Secretary of State, uh, to somebody else in the office. Um, and so Lindsey Graham becomes implicated in this. And now he's uh, his attorneys have said, we're not testifying. Uh, there's a whole different process. I don't want to get into the weeds on it. But when you issue a subpoena for people out of state, they, they do have recourse to avoid testifying uh, in, within their own state. They can take actions. But mm-hmm. Lindsey Graham is now in the hot seat on this, Amy.
0: Yes. And again, we get into sort of these issues of sort of what's allowed. Now we've got the speech and debate clause, which would come into this from the federal constitution. But more broadly, it's really showing how concerted these efforts were and how widespread they were and also how many people were involved and the degree of pressure that was put on. I mean, in many ways, right, it also kind of comes back to the fact that, I mean, Brad Raffensperger needs to receive a huge amount of kudos because, I mean, he refused to give in to the sitting president of the United States who asked him to do things. He didn't give in to pressure from the then chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. I mean, that is a lot of pressure for a lot of, right, for many people to withstand, and there's probably a lot of people that, that wouldn't have. And so it's really to his credit that he said no and, in fact, went so far as to say, like, hmm, I'm going to start to tape these because this seems highly problematic and I need to sort of have backup of what occurred. And it really sort of shows how widespread this was, but also the precariousness of the counterfactual, right? What if, in fact, Brad Rockenberger had said, okay. What Mm -hmm. if Brian Kemp, when he was pushed to call a special session, had said okay? What if Mike Pence had said okay? Right? It is concerning on some level the degree to which this was so dependent upon select people withstanding immense amounts of pressure. Mm -hmm. And that's really the only thing that held us between kind of a collapse of our democratic process.
1: So, uh, OK, but let me move this to the uh, realm. Uh, Kurt earlier talked about how this is, all that this is going on right now could have an impact on the midterm election cycle. Uh, Alan, one of the things you've got to think about is when, when, uh, when Raffensperger is singled out for praise for standing strong, when Kemp is singled out for praise, um, uh, it, the interesting thing there is... Uh, despite all we're seeing about the tr- what Trump has been doing and how it might put off independent voters, suburban women, whoever, it, it might accrue to the benefit of a Brian Kemp and a Brad Raffensburger in the general election. Yes?
2: It it might. Um I think we've already seen some evidence in the primary that um some Democratic voters decided to take a Republican primary ballot in in order to vote for Camp uh, and Raffensperger in order to vote for the Republicans who they viewed as standing up to Trump. That doesn't necessarily mean, however, that those same Democrats or other Democratic voters will vote for those Republicans in the general election.
1: Um, right, right.
2: I, I would expect that um, we'll see, you know, some of that will carry over into the general election, but I think what we're looking at here Heading toward November is going to be a knockdown, dragout, you know, partisan battle between Camp uh, and Stacey Abrams at the top of the ticket, then Warnock and Herschel Walker, and, and all the way down down the ballot. And, and what the polling indicates so far is that these are going to be very closely contested races. Um, that there's going to be huge spending uh, on on both sides uh, between now and Election Day that we're likely to see a very high turnout for a midterm election. So uh, uh, it's going to be an all-out war here. Uh, Raffensperger and maybe even Kemp get some marginal benefit, I think, from having stood up to Trump. How much benefit you know, remains to be seen, whether it makes a difference in the outcome of the election remains to be seen.
1: Okay. Um, I, we can continue this conversation on the other side of the break, but I'm already late to get to the first break of the show. So let me get it out of the way and we'll come back with more on Political Rewind.
4: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else.
1: By the way, if you're one of those people who did not get the Political Rewind a weekly newsletter delivered to your inbox late yesterday, Wednesday afternoon, here's the problem. You've got to subscribe. So why don't you do that by going to gpb.org newsletters and uh, subscribe to the Political Rewind newsletter. We'd love to have you join us. Amy Steigerwald, Kurt Young, Alan Abramowitz on the show today. I know, Amy, you wanted to uh, get a point in just as we were going to a break.
0: Oh, yes. I was thinking about the fact that one of the other issues that's really coming up in this and that we don't know how it's going to play out, and this is going to be sort of the other potentially part, is that on the one hand, Ellen is totally right that we've got this sort of very deep partisan split, Um, at least anecdotally. um, I know a number of people who did, in fact, vote in the Republican primary, and it was really much more a vote against the alternatives as opposed to a vote for Some of Mm -hmm. the candidates and their sort of plan is to go back to the Democratic side. The other part, which it will be interesting to see what happens, is that Trump has vowed that he will do everything he can to see Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger defeated. And we have seen at least early on, we had seen some evidence of uh, sort of strong Trump supporters saying that they weren't sure that they could vote for Uh, Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger if they were to win those primaries. Now, what's been interesting is that talk has sort of gone away, and so it'll be interesting to see if that reappears, especially as we're seeing things with the January 6th, or if, in fact, it comes back that people sort of come back to the party or if people stay home.
1: Well, but wait. I mean, the the margin of victory that Brian Kemp had over David Perdue, it's interesting that you suggest that because I would have thought – that he won by such a colossal margin, it suggests that Trump is not going to have the kind of influence uh, to turn people away from voting in the from Republicans, even Trump supporters voting for him. Don't do you, anybody else want to weigh in on that, um, Alan? Yeah.
2: No, I don't think Donald Trump's going to play much of a role in in the general election. Uh, I, I, he's certainly not going to be coming down and campaigning, for Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger. Um, he does have a couple of other candidates uh, running in yeah. Georgia here who he did endorse. Um, cool. You know, Burt Jones, uh, of course, Herschel Walker. Uh, but uh, whether th- even those candidates will want Trump to come down and campaign for them remains to be seen. Um, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm skeptical. I, I'm kind of skeptical that we'll see either Donald Trump or Joe Biden coming down to campaign in Georgia because I don't think Democrats or Republicans are interested and having those national political figures coming down and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and appearing with them.
1: Yeah, I think, Amy, you were sort of suggesting that you're not sure what the Trump uh, uh, impact could be on the general. It's certainly not what it was back when we had the U.S. Senate runoffs in uh, 2021, I think it's safe to say. Uh, let's move on. I want to talk to you all um, about the Quinnipiac uh, poll that uh, they released, I think it was just earlier this week, um, mm-hmm. or maybe late last week, they, they, they polled Georgia voters on the Senate race and on the gubernatorial contest. And Kurt Young, I was um, surprised by the fact that Quinnipiac finds that Raphael Warnock has a 10-point lead in July, late June, over... Herschel Walker. I, what do we make of of that kind of finding in a poll like this? Well, you know, Bill, I mean, I Quinnipiac on is one of the best-rated mm-hmm. pollsters. They, they get mm-hmm. very high scores for the, their polling. Go ahead, Kurt. Yeah, they're, they're one of the best. Um,
3: but I said on the show before, Bill, that uh, one thing we have to be guarded against, especially looking at the surprise, uh, what was considered a surprise in 2016, um, and I forget the exact uh, term that's used, but we, we have to be really careful on how we read responses to polls in the post uh, uh, 2016 election. Uh, we don't always get the clarity that we assume uh, to have been the case in previous elections. But having said that, I'm, I'm not so surprised for some of what uh, Amy and, and Alan said a little while ago in terms of what we've seen to be the performance of Trump supported uh candidates um um that we just discussed a minute ago um so what we may be seeing with walker may be on par with what we have seen with purdue and others right uh, nationwide so but then there's another part of it bill that came out of that poll which is i think is critical certainly critical for the democrats which is the way that the poll captured the lean of younger voters and the lean of women voters Now, of course, we need to see the context, right? I think it's a matter of fact that every generation, many generations, are inspired by something that occurs during their younger years that thrusts them into politics in a way that defines their political behavior uh, for a generation, right? And so we may be seeing this happening, this role decision happening in a way that motivates or mobilizes um, women, and particularly young women, to uh, support uh, a Raphael Warnock, and of course, by extension, um in that election um um uh, uh the gubernatorial candidate uh, Stacey Abrams right we can see that consistency if indeed we're seeing a whole generation of young women voters being mobilized and then likewise likewise we have a, a generation of young uh voters who are coming of age in the middle of an Obama uh period uh um maybe a younger set being mobilized by the uh, um the uh, injustices that occurred uh, in terms of, of of young black men and their treatment in the uh, uh, um, in the uh, criminal justice system. And so what I'm saying here, what I'm saying here is that if indeed we're seeing younger voters leaning in a certain direction and women voters leaning in a certain direction, we may be seeing the initial impact of that in the poll responses to uh, these 2 particular individuals in the state of Georgia.
1: All right. Let me amplify on that, Amy, and then Alan. On this, uh, let's look at the cross tabs on the Walker uh, Warnock race. According to uh, Quinnipiac, uh, it, it, it's interesting that Warnock leads Walker among independents by a wide margin, sixty-two to thirty-three percent, according to the poll. He also leads by a wide margin, as Kurt referred to it, among women, sixty-one to thirty-seven uh, percent. Um, he also leads by a huge margin among voters who are 18 to 34 years old, 66 to 32%. Again, uh, this is what, what Kurt's talking about. Um, that's a little bit dicier age group because we don't know how many of them turn out to the polls, but the demographics look awfully good for, uh, Raphael Warnock right now, Amy weigh in on this. And then Alan, I'd love to get your thoughts too.
0: Yes, definitely. I mean, one of the things I was most struck by was actually the difference in that support. So for both the senator race and the gubernatorial race, we see strong support, right, by those who identify as Republican and those who identify as Democratic for their particular candidates. Where really the kind of lead comes for Warnock is that he's got a much stronger lead among independents. Um, mm-hmm. actually does have a lead among independents, but it isn't as strong. It's only, uh, it's a much smaller margin, whereas Warnock is leading by really about 30%. And that is in many ways kind of what's driving that broader lead and sort of showing that area where there is this possibility of movement. I think it's also interesting because it does show how sort of voting on the national level for national level positions can be different than voting for state level positions. Um, Again, partly what you also have is the incumbency effect that is happening there uh, that's coming into it. And so Brian Kemp has that, right? There's been a number of policies that were implemented at the end of that legislative session uh, that really sort of benefited across the board. Uh, I I, I am a state government employee. I got a $5,000 raise. Um, That was quite lovely. Right. For Mm -hmm. a lot of people, right. These are things, those those sort of day to day issues that they're affected by that may play out differently uh, when it comes to voting than they do on sort of that national level. But it does show where um, the ability is, especially for Stacey Abrams, to maybe pick up if she's able to also bring along those same independent voters that Warnock is able to that Warnock has not right now.
1: So let's keep talking about Warnock-Walker, but just to frame it, what Amy's talking about, Alan, of course, as you know, is the gubernatorial contest, according to Quinnipiac, is a dead heat, 49 to 49. Mm-hmm. But let's yeah. look more at what we see between Walker and Warnock, and then we'll talk more specifically yeah. about the gubernatorial numbers.
2: Well, what's very interesting to me is that we're seeing Raphael Warnock, with this 10-point lead, uh in the same poll in which Joe Biden has a very low approval rating. So this is striking. Biden's approval rating in that same Quinnipiac poll is something like 38% uh, in Georgia. Uh, And yet we see, despite that, that Warnock has a 10-point lead over Walker and Stacey Abrams is tied with uh, with Kemp. So the Democratic candidates here in Georgia – are looking a lot better than than Joe Biden. There's this big disparity here between – there's there's an assumption, I think, that when you have an unpopular president that it's going to drag down all the candidates on the ticket with him. That isn't necessarily the case this year for a couple of reasons. Number one is I think that – and Herschel Walker is a great example of this. Thanks in large part to Donald Trump, Republicans have nominated very problematic candidates. In a number of states, for U.S. Senate, for governor, and in other statewide races, candidates closely aligned with Donald Trump, who may not turn out to be very strong candidates. We know that Herschel Walker, you know, never run for anything, and all of a sudden, we're learning more and more about all this personal baggage that he has, all the misstatements uh, that he has made about his personal background history, his businesses, all these sorts of things. Uh, the Democrats are just pouring it on uh, with that, so we're going to see a lot more of that because Raphael Warnock has a huge amount of money uh, to spend, and a lot of that money is going to be spent, and outside groups are going to spend on on these attack ads. But you've got that, and then uh, in addition to the problematic candidates who could cost Republican seats that were otherwise winnable, you have some national issues going on here that I think may hurt Republicans, Uh, and one of them, of course, is the abortion issue um, with the Supreme Court decision where we're seeing Democratic voters more energized. But that's not the only issue. There's also the issue of gun violence and and gun control and uh, Brian Kemp's support for the permitless carry bill in Georgia, and the Democrats are running what I think is a very, very effective ad right now going after Brian Kemp on that on that very issue of gun control so there's abortion there's guns there's the issue of the voting rights and democracy itself all these things so this may not be your typical midterm election that re, you know remains to be seen on the one hand you've got an unpopular president you've got high inflation you've got people struggling economically right now struggling to make ends meet which should favor republicans should favor the out party in the midterm election and at the same time though you've got these other issues uh the perception of a Republican Party that's increasingly viewed as extreme and then these problematic candidates like Herschel Walker
1: so um uh, before we get to our break Kurt uh it strikes me that the crosstabs in this poll uh sh- do have a they they point a ro- a roadmap map that the, that the Raphael Warnock people uh can use If they really expect, you know, find a way to win this thing. Whereas on the other side of it, it doesn't give the Walker folks much to go on. And here's what I mean by that. And when you look at personal traits on Raphael Warnock, by 20 points, people say he's honest, 20 points over dishonest. Um, 56 to 34 say he has good leadership skills, 59 to 33. He cares about average Georgians. On the other side of it, when it comes to whether um, Herschel Walker is honest, he's only up by four. 43% say yes, but 39% say no. And what's really fascinating to me, Kurt, 44 to 42% is the number. Only 2% more people think he cares about average Georgians than uh, uh, don't. It just strikes me that if you're the Walker campaign and you're looking at both the, the, the personal skills that, are, are that, po- that uh, people think about Warnock as opposed to Walker, Warnock's got a big edge there if you just take the poll as uh, proof of that.
3: Alan mentioned mm-hmm. a little while ago, many of the person, I think it was Alan, many of the, 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 the personal baggage that Walker has right now. There's also the narrative out there of his actual place of residence prior to the election. Um, There is the baggage associated with the Trump, I'm gonna call it that now, it's yet to be seen, but the baggage associated with the Trump endorsement and the extent to which that might backfire. What does that leave? All that's left for Walker is the fact that he was a superstar on a gridiron. He's a football superstar in the state of Georgia, right? Now, there was a major mistake I think that was made um, in the uh, uh, primaries, where Walker had he engaged the primaries would have had an opportunity to tell his story, shape his narrative in a way that countered mm. those tendencies that we that we are identifying now that are not coming to coming to fruition in the context of a, of a, a very formidable opponent, as you just laid out, as captured in the in the uh, the, uh, the poll in terms of Warnock, um, uh, and so. And then I don't want to make too much of this bill, but then also the the extent to which you have this, this, this serious orator in the case of Warnock and someone who has difficulty articulating as a candidate that's serious um, in a, in an election that will have national implications, right? So there is, beyond his, his stardom on the football field, there's not much substance there that can uh, radically change the direction of this uh, election, at least as the trends are showing now.
1: All right, I got to get to the final break of the show. Uh, suffice it uh, today uh, to say that in the gubernatorial race, and we'll talk more about this uh, moving forward on the show. It's a dead a dead heat. Uh, women favor Abrams, uh, which isn't surprising by a significant margin. Um, the uh, 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 Kemp has a forty three percent favorable opinion as opposed to forty two. Unfavorable. Abr- Abrams is uh, 46%, favorable to 42%. So that race is very close and it will continue to be, and we'll certainly watch it unfold. Let's get to the final break of the show and back with more in just a minute. Okay, so here's a subject I really am glad I have a panel of political scientists to help me understand. Uh, Alan Abramowitz, over the weekend, the Wall Street Journal published a piece. They went out and did a survey of how suburban women are feeling about election coming up in uh, the aftermath of the Roe decision by the Supreme Court. Um, They lead the story with a woman named Mary Schultz, who's right here in suburban Atlanta, who is shaken, she said, by the ruling of the court. (laughs) Quote, I can't believe they took us back 50 years, that my girls have less rights than I had. She said that one of her two grown daughters cried over the news. But despite the fact that she knows that Brian Kemp signed one of the most restrictive abortion bills in the country, she's going to vote for him because... Uh, she feels he's done a pretty good job getting the state through the COVID-19 crisis and that he's a good leader. But then she says she's going to vote for Raphael Warnock because she's hoping he'll take action on the federal level to open abortions back up. Mm-hmm. I have a very hard time, and I can imagine the uh, the kind of work political scientists have, have to do to untangle how voters get to the place where they know who they're going to vote for.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean— um... <laughs> What you have to keep in mind here is that they're focusing on a very tiny group of swing voters, of people who are sort of have inconsistent opinions uh, or are up for grabs, let's put it that way. Uh, That accounts for less than 10 percent of the vote in a state like Georgia, where the electorate is extremely polarized. Um, But of course, in a very close election, those folks could be important, right? And in the 2020 presidential election, there were very few swing voters, but the vote that did swing swung mainly from Trump in 2016 to Biden in 2020, opposite in 2012 to 16. So, you know, swing voters are a small group. They could make a difference. It's interesting that we're looking here at a voter, and I think there are maybe quite a few others in this camp who might vote for Brian Kemp, but also for Raphael Um, Warnock. There's not a lot of ticket splitting these days, um, but there might be enough to produce a split outcome in the races for governor and U.S. Senate in Georgia and possibly some of the other down-ballot races.
1: I get get that. I still think, Amy, that a Mary Schultz is a puzzle for Democrats if they want to win the governor's mansion (laughs) to try to figure out right now. I know it's anecdotal, but it's fascinating to me.
0: It is. I mean, and it taps into a bunch of these different issues about how it is that voters are perceiving of this information. You know, so part of it is, is that we do sort of look to people to have sort of consistency. And there's a number of people who on some level don't or for different races, different things matter. More on, um, and I think this is again where we see sometimes di- we're, we're more likely to see mm-hmm. different voting behaviors when we look at a national race versus a state race mm-hmm. and different things come into play that abortion is seen as this sort of federal national issue. And so that's where they're going to attach it. Whereas. The governor is in charge of my day-to-day, how much am I paying at the gas pump, and where are those things? And so it's trying to make sure, which is why I think in many ways, right, Stacey Abrams is focusing a lot on the gun violence issue. As Alan uh, mentioned, she also has, you know, when when you, if you go get gas right now, you're going to see an Abrams ad at a lot of places because she's talking about how the gas tax should be done. She's focusing mm-hmm. on uh, pay raises across the state. Uh, for different uh, people, including law enforcement officers and correctional officers. And it's because these different issues come into play and in how people think about them and think about who's responsible.
1: So um, we're running short of time, but I want to take one more example from this article, Kurt, and, and mention it to you. They interviewed a woman in Pennsylvania where you've got a contest where the, the Republican candidate, as we uh, most of us know now, is... State Senator Doug Mastriano, who's as far to the right as you can get, he wants to ban abortion entirely. This particular voter said, um, well, I'm going to vote for Mastriano because I don't like voting for Democrats, and, and I'm going to hope he won't do anything to uh, restrict abortion in state. I, the state. The thing that's fascinating about that is we have learned over and over again, especially since the Trump election, that elections have consequences. And yet that kind of voter doesn't seem to suggest an understanding of that.
3: <laughs> Political inertia is a powerful thing, right? I think of it like this. I think someone mentioned uh, 2012 a little while ago. Um, so if, let, let's take a 25 year old voter, I'm try to do this as quickly as possible. Let's say someone is 25 year old, a 25 year old in, uh, um, uh, 2012, that voter would have just been coming of age and paying attention to the politics of the Obama administration and all that that entailed, including uh, um, a, a, a longstanding support for Roe, right? Uh, let's take someone who's 65 and, and, and calculate backwards to where they will be coming of age, perhaps around the same time. So that would place them maybe 50 years ago, let's say uh, 1972. The political reality that they're coming of age in is a period where there's an anti-abortion uh, movement that's beginning to uh, fester. There's an anti-black uh, um, um, power movement, and so that inertia that comes from that period of time is going to manifest itself in the kind of uh, that kind of decision today in supporting someone like Matriano.
1: and right. So. Yeah. Kurt Young, I thank you for that. And thank you. We're we're out of time. Kurt, you get the last word on today's show. I loved listening to the three of you today. So Kurt, Amy Steigerwald, Ellen Abramowitz, um, it reminds me of how much I enjoy having all of you on this show on a pretty regular basis. Thanks for being here. We're out of time uh, for today. We're back with a brand new show, of course, tomorrow. And I hope you'll all join us for that. In the meantime, um, I'm Bill Nygut. I hope you will take care and stay healthy. See you again for another Political Rewind tomorrow at 9 and 2. Bye, everybody.